from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week, where the topic of discussion is going to be the Ford Motor Company, at least in the Americas. And that's because my special guest today is Joe Henricks, an executive vice president with the company and the president of the company's operations in the Americas. And Joe, great having you on AutoLine. Great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today are Mike Ramsey with the Wall Street Journal and Elisa Priddle with the Detroit Free Press. And great having the both of you here, too. Nice to thank you. Well, Joe, let's get into it. Uh, 2014 wasn't all that great of a year for Ford in the American market. Let's start with the U.S. and then we can look at the Americas. Even though the U.S. market went great, Ford sales were down, market share was down, revenue, the whole thing. My question is, is 2015 going to be the year you turn that all around? Well, it's certainly starting out to look that way, which is great. It's always been our plan that 2015 would be the opportunity year for us because of the heavy launch year we had in 2016. I mean, in our 111-year history, never did 16 launches in one in year. In 2014. In 2014. Of course, new product helps you gain market share and brings in customers in the showroom. So those 16 launches help us for 2015. Of course, we had lost production in 2014 as a result of all those launches, especially on the F-150 side, which influenced our share because we didn't have the, the volume to sell that we normally have. So all that had an impact on 14, but looking so good so far in 2015. Now, everybody was hit by all the, rec <coughs> excuse me, by all the recalls, Ford Motor Company included, too. What's your sense? Is this behind us? Or is it behind the industry or there's still more to come? Well, I'd like to think that the, you know, the magnitude of recalls that we had in 2014 won't repeat for the industry. But I do think we are at a level now where there's going to be escalated levels of recalls in the future. One, there's so much more data available to everybody to make decisions. Um, two, there's a much more proactive nature to the industry and to NHTSA on the subject. And, and three, I think all of us are looking for ways to serve our customers in, in, in new and better ways all the time. And serving a customer well in a recall actually is an opportunity to treat that customer the way you'd want to be treated. So what are you doing differently? What, how are you changing your processes so that you build more quality and right from the start? Yeah, Lisa, that's one of our, our key strategies uh, in our business. And we really start, it always starts with uh, new models because that's your biggest opportunity for success or for risk. And so with the new model launches we've had, especially with the magnitude of number we've had recently, we've gone back a year or two, three, four, five years and taken a look at all the reasons of things that happened during those launches and incorporated lessons learned into our processes, including adding, adding time to our development process, which in my career has been um, unprecedented. We've never done that before. And then make sure the releases get done on time, make sure the prototype builds are done on time, make sure the testing's done on time, and then you give the chance and the supplier, the plant and the, and the suppliers a chance to succeed. And in 2014, we saw a much better launch year uh, for Ford in that regard, even with the magnitude of launches we had because of all that preparation. Well, how much time did you add to the development program? Well, we don't give that out for competitive <laughs> reasons, but, but we found that when we were looking at the reasons why some of the things happened, that we didn't have enough time to do certain elements of the development process um, the way we wanted to. And so what happened was we did them to make the product right, but we ended up being a little bit late, and that puts pressure downstream. And so what we did was just recognize that. Instead of trying to push it you know, less and less time, let's recognize the time it is taking to do it right and put it into our processes to give our people a chance to succeed. Well, I wanted to ask on the recalls, um, the, one of the things you announced with Sync 3, which is coming up this year, is the over-the-air updates. How does that change how you might be able to address a number of recalls um, in the future? Yeah, it's a big opportunity for the industry and certainly for ourselves as well. 
uh, with Sync 3, we can do over-the-air updates uh, to the system. And previously with my Ford Touch or even the original Sync system, you had to do it with a, with a USB and you had to do it with, you know, over-the-air but with a USB and you had to get outside your garage. With the new system, we're going to be able to give over-the-air updates. And that's going to actually give a lot of opportunity for people to get constant, not constant, but regular updates to the software and to the system. Then in the vehicle itself, moving forward, you're going to see a lot more embedded modems, uh, which gives the opportunity for the vehicle to get over-the-air updates as well, which will really transform, I think, how the industry views constantly updating the vehicle as opposed to recalls or customer service actions or even you know powertrain upgrades, um, calibration upgrades. You can do a lot of that over the air in the future. So there's a lot going to come for the consumer that will make life easier and make the experience driving a vehicle much safer and better. Joe, I'm so impressed and intrigued that Ford is putting so much emphasis on performance. I, I even had to make the list here because it's gotten so long. You have the Fiesta ST, the Focus ST. You just announced the Focus RS. You got the Mustang GT350R, which is an awesome car. The Raptor, high-performance pickup. You announced the Ford GT sports car. Why the emphasis now so much on performance? Well, several reasons. First of all, just from a business standpoint, this is one of the fastest growing segments of the U.S. industry. The performance side of the business has grown 70% in volume since the financial crisis of 2009. So it's been growing very rapidly. It brings a different kind of consumer into the brand. Um, typically younger, typically um, uh, wealthier into the brand because they're looking for that performance. And it also brings excitement, which is very important, uh, not, not just to a GT or to a Raptor, but also to a Fiesta and to a Focus, whether it's the ST or the RS on the Focus. And, and so all of these things together uh, make it a great business case, but they also bring excitement to our employees, to our developers, to our dealers, to, and to our brand, and of course, most importantly, to our customers. So we think it makes good business sense. Also, it's fun to do. It's a fun part of our business, and, and we're excited about it. Other companies, you know, for example, Mercedes has their AMG line with performance versions of almost their entire lineup. BMW has M and so on down the line. Do you see it expanding even more than with the vehicles you have? Well, we said there's going to be 12 of them by 2020. You just ran through a list of many of them. Um, and so there's opportunity for a few more. And for us, it's about, as I said earlier, that excitement for the brand, bringing new customers in and bringing together the opportunity to show our new technologies in a more advanced stage, perhaps, than on a base vehicle. And also ties in our racing performance, which has been prominent all around the world, into our performance vehicles. And so when you look at the technologies we're talking about, whether it's EcoBoost engines with their performance, or whether it's aerodynamics or lightweighting, you know, carbon fiber tub, for example, in the Ford GT, or the carbon wheels, carbon fiber wheels in a GT350R. These are all advancements in technology that we can showcase on vehicles people can buy and also get experience with them as we look to the future. Now the Ford GT, is that gonna be built here in the Americas? Well, it'll be built in the Americas for sure. We haven't said where, um, it'll be built in North America. And um, you know, we'll have more to say on that at the right time, but we, because of its carbon fiber nature, it'll be made in a facility that's more, you know, that's more centered on focusing on carbon fiber, which is not a mass production facility like we have in our assembly plants. But stay tuned. We'll have some more to say about that. Okay, shortly. the rumor on the street is it's going to be made by Multimatic in Canada. <laughs> well, there's a lot of rumors out okay. there about, about GT. But, <laughs> I didn't uh, think I'd get the answer out of you. But but we'll wait and see what we have to say about that. <laughs> well, well I, you were in Canada for a while. You've got friends there. I do have friends. Hopefully, I think I do. I, I like to say I do. Uh, I look forward 
forward to going to the Toronto Auto Show every year. But, um, you know, we'll have more to say as we get closer to it. We have, it's a late 2016 timeframe that we talked about. Um, so we have, we have time to, you know, the, the questions are always, where are you going to build it? What's, how many are you going to build? What's the price? Um, and can I get one? Usually not in that order, actually. Um, um, but you know, we'll have time to talk about it. But very exciting product for us. And, you know, it's been 10 years since we actually, uh, since we finished the last one, time goes by so fast, and the GT's gotten, you know, as you know, was designed car of the year, the show, and North American Not only that, show. Uh, the, the used ones that are out there now have just about doubled in value. Yeah, I'm very happy about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious, and I, um, you know, I've written some on this, but how important is raising um, pricing uh, as part of the strategy for, uh, for putting in these racing variants. I mean, it seems, I know that this is something Jim Farley, when he was the head of sales marketing, talked a lot about with the introduction of the Titanium brand. Are these performance vehicles really important to, you know, to the bottom line, the sense of raising Ford's ability to get more money out of its products? Well, certainly because of the performance nature and the materials and, and everything, they are, you know, certainly typically higher priced and they do bring in good revenue. And it is a profitable business to be in. Um, and it's an exciting business, but we like how it ties all of this innovation and technology, performance and racing, but also performance in the vehicle and the excitement around the brand together. And, and it's an exciting thing to be working on. Because even Bill Ford said that, that there isn't a business case for the GT per se, but what it does for the company as a whole is the business case. Yeah, well, the GT is a little special exception um, because <laughs> of the limited quantities and because of the expensive nature of the project, but it means so much to the brand and to the excitement around what we can do with the product. And, you know, this new GT is not just a, a sports car, it's a supercar. And uh, it's taken the previous generation GT to a whole other level. And it showcases what we can do with a lot of new materials and with, a, and with an EcoBoost engine, a, a 3.5 liter V6 engine getting over 600 horsepower. I mean, it shows you the capabilities of our basic platforms that we have to work with. And, and so that makes a good, good business case unto itself. Well, the other end of the spectrum, of course, is the F-150, at the other end of the volume spectrum, I guess. <laughs> yeah, different, um, different. And so you have such demand that you are adding another 1,550 people, and you've been adding so many people, you have to actually start taking entry-level workers and boosting them up to the higher wage. Talk a little bit about about this. Yeah, when you, when you go back to the 2007 UW agreement, when, they first, when the entry-level agreement was reached, um, you know, the cap for the amount of entry-level workers, the percent of the, of the workforce was 20%. In Ford's case, plus Sterling and Rossonville, who were ACH plants that were brought into the family, plus all insourcing that took place post that negotiations. And so we've been keeping track with the UAW all along, making sure we agree on the numbers. And we've now reached the point where we've, we've created over 14,000 jobs in the last four years. We've added so many new entry level that we've now reached the point where, with all that math, we've reached the threshold contractually of where we are. Um, and that was always the design of the entry level agreement, was to, for employees to enter in at a certain level and then with seniority, over time, reach a higher level. The F-150 business, uh, which is, you know, a, a big part of our North American business and an exciting part of it, the reception to the new truck's been outstanding. Uh, matter of fact, the first couple of months of sales, December and January, we've sold twice what we expected to sell of the 15 model, the new model. 
they're selling so fast, um, it's, it's exceeding our expectations early on. And we are seeing strong demand for that truck from our dealers, from our order bank and everything. So we've increased our capabilities in our, in what we call the supply system, Dearborn Diversified, Dearborn Stamping, um, and also in Kansas City to be able to give ourselves the, a good chance of making even more once we get them fully launched. So exciting start to F-150, and we're really excited what it means for the rest of the year. I'm curious about uh, the North American market. I know that Ford has uh, made a forecast but how do you feel about where we're at in terms of the top of the market? I mean, realistically, how many more new vehicles a year can we sell? And, you know, obviously we don't know when the next recession is going to come, but are we at the top of the market? Well, if you, look, if you believe the forecasts, uh, not just ours, but outside forecasts, yeah. um, there's more upside potential to the industry. Certainly the rate of growth is, is declining, but it's certainly still growing. If you look at January of, of this year, it was a 17 million SAR if you count the, um, the heavy-duty trucks like we do. And that's a strong start to the year. When you, when you look at it, you know, the, the expectations are that GDP in the U.S. grows about 3%, lower 3% this year. That's an enabler for, for more sales. Uh, consumer confidence right now, a good time to buy for cars is at the highest it's been in quite some time. Gasoline prices are low. Interest rates are low. So this is a good environment. Now, how long does that last? You know, people do expect interest rates will start to rise perhaps in the second half of this year. But at what pace do they do that? There's some mm -hmm. theories out there that it's pretty slow. Uh, all that means is that right now the economic environment in the United States is still pretty supportive of a growing industry. Mm -hmm. Because even with the market growing the last five years like it has, the average age of the fleet is still over 11 years old. Where yeah. historically was around in the nines before the financial crisis. So there's one argument to be made that there's still room for replacement to, to propagate the more sales in, the, in, a, just in addition to the economic growth that's happening. So um, there are limits to capacity because uh, of all the restructuring that took place, but cer certainly it's a, it's a good time right now for the industry. And what, what's an encouraging sign is even though the growth rate's slowing down, transaction prices are still rising, they're still healthy, which means it's not being driven by incentives just to get more people to buy. It's really consumers love the new products, it's a good time to buy, um, and they're there for the, in the market. Hey, I'd like to go back to uh, the UAW contract, which is going to be a big story later this year because there hasn't been anything going on for years now. What are you on the lookout for? The UAW has been very vocal. They have not received a base wage increase since 2007. There's been other things that have helped offset that, of course, lump sum payments and profit sharing. Mm -hmm. But I understand the UAW's desire to have higher base wages, their pensions tied into it and the like. Nonetheless, I got to believe you guys are keeping a hawk's eye on the other transplants in the U.S. and want to remain labor cost competitive with them. So what are some of the things that you'd love to get out of this contract? Well, I mean, certainly when we go together uh, in the contract negotiations this fall, we'll be looking to find a solution that clearly will work for, for all of us. Uh, it's in our interest to do so. And we have a history of doing that between Ford and the UAW, if you even go back to 2007, 2009, 2011. Um, you know, if you have to step back, I think, and just look at what's transpired since the financial crisis. In the 2011 agreement to now, as I said earlier, we've created 14,000 jobs, which is a big deal to the UAW, and it's a big deal to our employees, and a big deal to Ford Motor Company. In the last four years now, we've had over $30,000 total cumulative profit sharing uh, in the last four years to our employees. So um, when, you, when you think about what we did with the restructuring and all the help we got from the UAW and everyone else, um, it has worked. 
our business has grown, employment has grown, profits have grown, and reinvestment in the business has grown substantially. So we can't lose sight of how we got to where we are today. Um, and part of that, how we got here, was maintaining a, a, a focus on being competitive in, what, in manufacturing in the United States. So when you look at what the transplants have done since we've done those agreements, the transplants have actually added more temporary workers to balance out their costs. So when you look at what's happened since then, our costs have come down because of the VBA and because of the entry level and other things. But the transplant costs have come down as well because they've just rebalanced things by adding more temporary workers and who are lower paid and with fewer benefits. And so what we have to do is watch out because consumers, they clearly care what the vehicle costs and what they get for their money. And we need to maintain our level of competitiveness, ideally improve that competitiveness in our agreement. At the same time, of course, have to listen to what the expectations are and the desires are of our partners in the UAW and the workers and find a solution that can work for all of us. There's lots of ways to find that solution as long as both parties are listening to each other and, and want to find that solution. And that's been our history. We've found those solutions, even in times that people doubted that we could find them. Um, but I always remind people that, you know, everything we did together, it, it actually exceeded our expectations. If you go look back at what we were thinking was going to happen and what has transpired in jobs, profits, growth, industry volume, everything. Um, so let's not lose sight of that. And we don't want to repeat this cycle of what's been historically the practice in the auto industry. In the good times, costs go way up. In the bad times, everybody restructures painfully, and then it comes back again. We need a, a, a more steady look at the business on costs and profitability and you know, our fixed cost base so that we can keep investing and also not have these cycles that are painful for everybody. No, but isn't the entry level issue problematic because, you know, you do have p two people on the line making different wages, but also you're at a disadvantage because you have a cap of the number that you can have that the other two automakers don't. Obviously, that changes after mm -hmm. the next mm -hmm. contract, but is that not one of the main issues where you need an uneven playing field? And should you even have two wage classes? Yeah, there are really two different issues, but two important issues. I mean, if you, if you, first of all, you know, GM and Chrysler were... Um, given uh, a change to the cap based on the bankruptcies and the government involvement in that um, till 2015. So we'll see how that transpires and I'll let the UAW and GM and Chrysler work, work that out. Uh, clearly, we, you know, our expectations are that the UAW would maintain competitiveness amongst the, all, all three companies as best they can given the circumstances because it's not in the UAW's interest to have one advantage over the other, at least on the economic side of things. But when you look at the entry-level topic, I mean, first of all, first and foremost, all the entry-level employees who've been hired were hired under the full knowledge of the contract and what it, what it means. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a reason why it's called entry-level, because people enter in at that level and then they have an opportunity over time, based on the percentages and based on the caps, to convert to the, um, what now is now called new traditional. Um, and now we're, we're finally reached that cap at Ford uh, and, and we're now converting. So it's taken a long time. So the, the fact that it's taken so long um, provided some skepticism out there that would it ever happen or is it really real? But now it's happening and now we're at that point where, um, where it certainly should happen more and more because hopefully we'll continue to see growth. But uh, this, this idea or this notion that um, you know, two people in the same plant making different wages, that's been around forever. I mean, there's, there's skilled trades with different wages. There's, um, you know, whether you're in, in, in old days, a material handler was different than an assembly worker. Those things still exist. Um, but it's more pronounced now with entry level, clearly. 
what we want to do is provide growth opportunities in the business to, to make sure those entry levels have the opportunity to progress to the next level. And the best, the best thing we can do to support that is to have an environment where we can keep investing and growing our business. And that's what should be in our aligned interests between the UAW and Ford. You know what I, I don't hear about anymore and, um, is uh, Canada and its competitive. So the, the dollar strengthened a lot and the Canadian dollar has weakened a lot. I wonder if you could talk about where Canada stands now, and is their industry a lot more competitive? Is is, that, is there a possibility? And if, you, and if I can add on, you mentioned that there's capacity constraints now. Um, with SUVs, do you, are you considering ways to try to get out more uh, escapes and MKCs and explorers? Yeah, well, on the second topic, we've been steadily increasing our line rates and our capacities with our supply base with explorers, with escapes and MKCs as two good examples. Um, over the last 18 months, and we're continuing to do that this year. So we're, we're taking our current capacity and increasing it to get more volume, and we've been able to support the market's growth. If you look at Explorer sales over the last couple of years, for example, they've increased dramatically because we've increased our capacity and production of the Explorer in Chicago. And we're doing the same thing on other SUVs and, and certainly always looking for that on trucks as well. In Canada, you know, the Canadian dollar has weakened so much in a relatively short period of time. You know, we haven't seen the latest numbers as we reassess everything because this was 81 cents to the U.S. dollar right. last time I looked. And it wasn't long ago, less than two years ago, it was above parity. Right. So it's happened very quickly. Well, that does change the manufacturing cost in Canada, clearly, when you're, when you're buying in U.S. dollars. So we'll take a look at that. I mean, we tend to want to look at things over time. We don't tend to react to things, that are, you know, in a, in a given year or two when it comes to setting up your footprint because, mm -hmm. you know, things are going to move just like currencies moved. I mean, um, look what's happened to the yen. Look what's happened right. to all kinds of other things. Um, but we also need to recognize that the, the, the competitiveness of a market is more than just the wage rate. It's everything inclusive of it. It's everything from healthcare costs to logistics costs to the the um, regulatory environment and the government um, support of the industry, the labor contracts and the relationship you have with your union partners, all those things are part of that. So it's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than just the wage rate. Plus, there's the capacity you have or don't have and where, where the best places are to, to um, increase that if you need it. It is complicated, but, but certainly your wage costs are a big part of it. And, and we'll assess, you know, we're going to do the UAW contract this year and then we'll, we'll do the Unifor contract uh, uh, in the year after that, and we'll continue to take a look at what, the, what that means. Although the Canadian government has floated the idea of trying to maybe move the Canadian one up a year and do it at the same time. Would that, uh, <laughs> what I do you think, think of all, that? I think we're all going to be pretty busy in the fall. Um, I don't know who set the date, but they weren't looking at the calendar. The, the, the UAW contract expires on Labor Day. Uh, I mean, come on. Uh, I, think we'll, I think we'll figure it out. That's a nice irony there. If we go back a year ago, there was a lot of talk amongst automakers in, in the North American market as to whether or not suppliers would be able to keep up because uh, production was growing so fast. Kind of looks to me like the industry got through it. Is that still a concern of yours? Because there's a lot of churn in the supplier industry. Yeah. I mean, we probably saw it most prominently in 2012 because the industry kicked up so much. And um, 11, it grew 10 and 11, but 12 really kicked up. And we saw a number of issues in supply base in 2012 across the industry. There's been isolated instances the last couple of years, but I'd say by and large, the supply base has done a remarkable job of accelerating that capacity because it's all come back faster than any of us expected. I don't think any of us sitting back five years ago, we're doing forecasts of 17 million SARS in the U.S. 
and um, and we'd all restructured to a lower level than that, including <laughs> ourselves, and and it's all happened more quickly. So I give the the supply base all kinds of accolades for responding quickly. I mean, because in, in many respects, the supply base cut even deeper than we did, the OEMs, mm -hmm. um, and have had to really you know race to catch up, but. Uh, you know, we've all enjoyed this volume growth that's come very str uh, strongly the last five years, but it's been a remarkable upswing when you consider how far we fell at 10.6 million units in 2009. And they've done a great job keeping up. And it's not much, too much of an issue now. Now the issues are more individual issues that would happen anytime. You know, a supplier gets into bankruptcy or a supplier has um, a, a machine breakdown or something. Those are normal things that happen on a given year, not, not chasing the volume up. But now you've insourced some work since the last contract. Is that a trend that we can expect to see going forward? Um, I think you'll see some more of that. We're running out of space physically um, in many of our <laughs> facilities. Uh, that was a big deal. Uh, the entry-level agreement really changed the thinking about bringing work back in. Um, I mean, yeah. for decades, we were taking work out. And once the entry-level um, discussion took place in 2007, as you've seen in the industry, it's all been about a lot of bringing some work back in because it makes more sense if it can be at a competitive labor rate, it makes more sense to be in the four walls or be right nearby for inventory and logistics costs and everything else. But I can tell you at Ford, we're getting pretty full uh, in most of our facilities because the line rates are going up and we're making all kinds of volume, we're running three crew, you know, seven days a week. So I think you'll see a little bit more of it, but most of it's already happened. We're, we're down to the very end here. We haven't even talked about South America, which uh, you run for the Ford Motor Company, too. I'm, I'm blown away that Venezuela, which is a relatively small part of the Ford Motor Company, can create such economic havoc on the company. Real quick, we're down to less than a minute here. Can you, can you give us an outlook as what might happen there? Yeah, well, we've, de we've deconsolidated Venezuela from our operations. We're going to still run it the same way we always ran it, but because of the volatility and the inaccessibility, inability to get dollars, we can't run the business the way we want to run it, so um, we don't have control over it. Part of that is because we had 800, originally had $800 million of U.S. dollars cash on the books in boulevards in Venezuela, and each time it devalued, we had to take a profit hit because it, that devalued, and we couldn't get the money out of the country. So that will go away now with the, with the <laughs> deconsolidation, but it's a complicated place. You're right, it gets a lot of attention. I, I was just so amazed to see that it was an $800 million hit, but I, anyway, I thought we'd just squeeze that into the end of the show here. <laughs> Joe Henricks, thanks so much for coming in. Very interesting discussion. I love hearing what you're talking about here. It sounds very exciting. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Also want to thank Mike Ramsey from the Wall Street Journal, Elisa Priddle from the Detroit Free Press. Great having the both of you here, too. Thank you. Thanks, John. And I want to thank all of you for having tuned in.